Good morning. This morning's reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2 and reading from verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Ian, and good morning, everybody. Uh, for some reason, this has become an incredibly busy week. Um, not only do we have our AGM today, uh, but um, I start lecturing again at the college on Wednesday, then we have Norma's memorial service on the Friday, and uh, next Sunday, um, in the evenings, I'm doing two Sunday evenings at Takai Community Church on marriage. It's rather interesting, this. Um, my younger daughter does the music there, and uh, it's been rather fascinating uh, having her call me up saying, now, Dad, I'm organizing the service. What are you going to preach for us? And having her say to me, no, not this. No, haven't you got anything better than that? And uh, anyway, we did get there eventually, but it was a bit of a process. Anyway, here we are. And actually, just to get the title of this series right, it's not what we believe. It's what Christians believe. And that, I think, is an important distinction. That is the title of the series, What Christians Believe. Let's uh, pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Loving Father, please open the eyes of our minds this morning that we might see truth and reality as you want us to see it, so that we might live in the light of it. And we ask for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, as the title of our series suggests, what we're doing is looking at the essentials of the Christian faith. And we're doing this, I think, for a couple of reasons. Um, The first and most obvious reason, I suppose, is that when we recite the Apostles' Creed together, we want to understand what we're saying, not just sort of mouthing the words, not being sure. But uh, the second reason that we're doing this is so that you and I can can defend and hold on to these tremendous truths 
in a world that's trying its absolute hardest to deny them. I don't know about you, but I think it's actually impossible to overstate the extent of the attack on Christian truth in the world today. Uh, Both inside and outside the church, uh, there are people who are trying to change or remove or dilute the essentials of what Christians believe, and you and I need to hold on to them. How do we do it? How do we defend the faith? Well, this is interesting. The way that we defend our faith is by giving it away. I wonder if you've ever thought of it like that. See, we don't lock up our faith in a box on Sunday after the service and ask Raymond to look after it until next Sunday morning. No, we pass it on to our children, to our neighbours, to our family. That's the way we defend the faith. It's what we're doing, isn't it, when we read the word one-to-one with somebody else. We're defending the faith. So far, we've looked at belief in God, we've looked at belief in Jesus, we've looked at belief in his virgin birth, And now this morning we come to what Christians believe about his death. So we're looking at that part of the Apostles' Creed which says, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, and then that very complicated and difficult phrase, he descended into hell. Now why should we be thinking about this? Well, again, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, everybody on the planet is a theologian. Uh, We might be good theologians, we we might be confused theologians, but everybody's a theologian. Everyone has an opinion about God. And your theology might be clear, or it might be foggy, but you have a theology. One of the uh, better books on the Apostles' Creed was written by a man called Dr. Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in the United States. And in his book, he says that on one occasion, he was uh, taking part in a debate in Washington. And uh, after the debate, there was a kind of Q&A session, and uh, a man in the audience stood up and uh, announced himself to be an astrophysicist, and he said, look, I've got two PhDs, Uh, I work with NASA, I'm a Christian, but please could we stop with the theology? I just want Jesus Christ. And uh, Dr. Moeller replied, well, you've just made a theological statement. You've just announced that Jesus is the Christ. See, there wasn't a a letterbox in Nazareth with the name Jesus Christ written on it. Jesus is the Christ. He's God's king, and that's what you've said. So you see, as soon as that man stood up and spoke about Jesus Christ, he was actually saying something theological. And uh, when you and I speak about Christian things, it's important that we can speak about these things clearly and truly and faithfully. 
And then I think the second reason that we're looking at these amazing statements in the creed is because truth affects us. It affects us on the good days and it affects us on the bad days. You know, if we see God clearly, it affects us. If we see him only dimly or rather cloudily, it affects us. And whether our life is difficult or whether life is great, truth matters. And you and I need to know what Christians believe about Jesus in order that we can be helpful to other people. And uh, I suggest that if you come to understand the words that we're looking at this morning, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, and he descended into hell, it will change you. It will. Now, I want you to notice that the creed jumps over an awful lot of things that could be said about Jesus. Uh, So there's nothing in the creed about his perfect life. There's plenty about that in the Gospels, not in the Creed. There's no information in the Creed about his powerful teaching. There's plenty of it, of course, in the Bible. The Creed says nothing. There's nothing in the Creed.
No doubt all criminals were terrified at their own crucifixion. He knew that on the cross, Very important to remember that. Don't listen. That is nonsense. Fearfully. So it reminds us, you see, that Jesus was crucified at a particular time in a particular place. And uh, there are plenty of historians who've written uh, about Pontius Pilate, Tacitus, uh, Josephus, Philo, they've all written about him. And Pilate is mentioned at least 60 times in the New Testament. I wonder if you knew that. So the fact of the crucifixion is undeniable. No sensible historian today denies that Jesus lived and died. None. But actually, Pilate's important for another reason. Because Pilate, you see, represents the rejection of Jesus Christ by the world. Do you remember what John says in the introduction to his gospel? He says, Jesus was in the world, created it, he was in the world, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, his own people, but his own received him not. They rejected him. That is a major theme throughout the New Testament. Uh, He's rejected, isn't he, by those who knew him as a child in Nazareth. Uh, He's rejected by the Jewish religious establishment, He's rejected by Pilate, who condemned him to die as a political threat. Now, it would be wrong, actually, for us to isolate any one of those groups and place the responsibility for the death of Jesus on them and them alone. 
But all three groups point to the same thing, and I want you to listen to me very carefully here. They all point to the sinfulness of all human nature. And the point is, here's the point, sin bites so deep into human nature that it messes with our ability to recognize God when he's standing right in front of us. Mercifully, Jesus came to deal with that problem by his death. And because on our own, we won't understand it correctly, God interprets it for us. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins. And what this means, and I think this is probably the most important thing I can say to you today if you're listening to this, and you don't know very much about Christianity. What this means is that if you look back in your mind's eye to Jesus on the cross, and you say to yourself, he died not for his sins, but for my sins, and then you cry out from your heart, Jesus, please forgive me. Have mercy on me. Give me new life. Well, you will receive it immediately and you'll find yourself forgiven and clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus and that means from that moment on you'll go forward every day right with God so in spite of all the failures all the mess-ups all the stumblings that are common to all of us we all do them you will walk each day right with God until you stand before him as the Bible says, without fault and with great joy. Don't you want that? I'm sure you do. So those who think, as as many people do today, when they think about Christianity or religion, many people think, I must do better, it's all about me. Well, friends, that is not Christianity. Christianity is grasping the cross, then crying out to God, and then it's receiving a free gift. And then it's looking forward to meeting him without blemish and free from accusation, as Colossians says. Now, there are people today who say that the creed simply records the historical fact of the death of Jesus without actually saying whether the death of Jesus was meaningful simply says he was crucified. But friends, crucifixion in the creed is a very loaded word. For a start, it was predicted in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. Now, remember, that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the Romans came to power and actually invented that particular method of execution. It was plainly predicted in the Old Testament. But more than that, the reason it's a loaded word is because in Deuteronomy, there's a place where it says that if you hang somebody on a tree or on a pole or on a wooden cross it's a sign that person is under God's curse. 
So you see, when Jesus was crucified, he wasn't simply being executed. He was under God's curse. And Jesus willingly took the curse our sins deserve in order to give us willingly the mercy and the forgiveness that his life deserved. And that's why, you see, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, do you see then that it's possible, isn't it, for us to hear about the cross, know a little bit about the cross, maybe to even see a film about the cross and still not understand it? Dr. Mola says in his book that um, years ago he went to a pre-screening of that marvellous film, The Passion of the Christ. Do you remember that? came out 20 years ago, directed by Mel Gibson. And um, he was sitting with a, a group of reviewers and, and journalists, and he was amazed to see as the film was playing that these journalists and reviewers were handing out popcorn to one another. And uh, he says he found himself wondering whether they actually understood the significance of what they were seeing. Because this was far more than just a gruesome death. Jesus was bearing the judgment of Almighty God, and these people were munching popcorn. So, here is the infinite Son of God. He takes the form of a man. He has... The normal quantity of blood in his body, same amount as you and me, but his blood is sufficient to forgive the sins of billions of people who've each committed millions of sins throughout their lives and to give them mercy and fellowship and hope at an incredible cost to himself. And all of that he makes available to us as a free gift. So that's the crucifixion. The fact and the significance. Let's move on and look rather more briefly at the phrase, he died and was buried. Now again, it's a fact that Jesus died. And it's a fact that he was buried. No question about his death. How do we know that? Well, nobody survived crucifixion. Uh, The Romans made absolutely sure of that. And uh, we know from the rest of the New Testament that if the Romans wanted to speed up the process, what did they do? Well, they went along and they broke the victim's legs. And then they would suffocate. But when the soldiers came to Jesus on the cross, they didn't need to do that. Why not? Why not? Because... He was already dead. Instead, what they did was they stuck a spear in his side and all that fluid around the pericardial sac flowed out. And then his devoted friends, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took the corpse and buried it in Joseph's tomb. Now think about that. Why did these faithful friends bury Jesus? Well, because he was dead. We don't know the exact location of the tomb. Um, There are several possibilities. But uh, because Jesus was only in that tomb for such a short time, 
It's interesting, isn't it? There's no shrine to mark the spot, no shrine for pilgrims to go to. But the significance of that death is absolutely central to our faith. And we need to get this clear in our minds. How are we to understand the death of Jesus? Now, obviously, I say it's obvious, maybe it isn't, but obviously we're not saying that God died on the cross. Yes? We're not saying that, are we? What we mean is that Jesus, in his humanity, died. So, he was buried as a corpse, as people are, and he experienced the full force of death as people do. And so this burial is proof that his work of dying was real and complete. A friend gave him the tomb. The soldiers guarded the tomb. The women visited the tomb. Jesus was dead in the tomb. And the Bible says, this is where we sort of think about the application, that in his death, Jesus took the sting out of death. And he did it in order to provide a safe passage for us. Now, this is really important for us to get our minds round. See, you and I fear the grave. We fear the process of dying. We fear the different causes of death and the experience of death. It is a fearful thing. The Bible says death is an enemy. But as Christians, you and I have got to learn to distinguish between what John John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress describes as the river of death. We've, We've all got to cross that river. But we need to distinguish between that and and the fact that there might be danger involved in it because the danger's been taken away. Yes, there's a river, but there's no danger for the Christian. Yes, there is a river, but there is no evil. For as David says, doesn't he, in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. See, that's because the sting has been taken away by Jesus' death. So it's perfectly natural for us to be apprehensive about the whole process of dying. But friends, dear friends, when our time comes, we need to remember that the one who died before us is going to come alongside us in exactly the right way, at exactly the right time, with exactly the right resources. Okay? And that's because he not only went through the river and is able to be compassionate in our circumstances, but it's because he's taken the danger away. Well, now, finally, let's look at this uh, tantalizing little phrase, he descended into hell. It's probably the most puzzling phrase in the creed. Um, How are we to understand it? I mean, are we meant to imagine that Jesus was somehow lowered on a rope into a pit of fire? I mean, did Jesus suddenly 
find himself in kind of a horrific underground abyss with lots of people wandering around looking terrible. No, it's not nothing like that. The word hell in the creed comes from a Greek, the Greek word Hades, which is simply the place of the dead. So what we're saying is that sometime between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus was in the place of the dead. It simply means that Jesus went where dead people go. And that's a biblical fact, because Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 12, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, verse 40. In Acts 2, uh, Peter says that when he died, Jesus went to the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. And in 1 Peter 3, Peter says that Jesus visited the spirit world. Come back to that in a moment. So we need to explain to people if they ask us that when we say he descended into hell, we're not talking about punishment. We're talking about Jesus going where dead people go. And I think I can actually prove that to you because the place of the phrase in the Apostles' Creed is not with the cross. Isn't that interesting? It's after the burial. See, in in the Bible, it's at the cross that Jesus experiences the hell of punishment. That's what the Gospels tell us. But when he died and was buried, he goes to Hades, which is the place of the dead. Now, application. From the rest of the New Testament it seems pretty clear that when a person stops breathing and their heart stops pumping, they go consciously to one of two destinations. Either they go to a place of great security. So remember the words of Jesus to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Or they go consciously to a place of great grief. So remember how Jesus uh, spoke about the rich man in the parable who died and was now in a place of great torment. So have you got this clear? The picture in the New Testament is that when a person dies, they go consciously to one of those two destinations a place of great security and comfort, on the one hand, kind of paradise, or to a place of great grief and regret. And that's where they stay until the day Jesus returns, until the day of judgment, until the dawn of that perfect new creation that I hope we're all looking forward to this morning. So what is the significance of that phrase? He descended into hell. It's not a geographical statement. It's a figurative way of talking about the next stage in the process of Jesus moving from the womb to the tomb. That's all it is. What did Jesus do between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Well, obviously, he was in the grave as a man, which was an essential step in his work of salvation. 
but he also went to the grave as a messenger. Because in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told that he went to the place of the dead, the place where the spirits are, to announce his victory. Don't misread that. doesn't mean he was preaching evangelistically. He wasn't. He simply announced, I've done it. The job's done. It's finished. The victory's won. Next Sunday morning, we're going to see that the grave couldn't hold him. That's why Peter preached at Pentecost that Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. His body didn't didn't even see decay because he wasn't in the grave long enough. Instead, God raised him and his disciples were privileged to see him, touch him, eat with him and feast with him. And friends, what you and I need to remember this morning is that the experience of the Lord Jesus going through the grave is what he promises to every believer that when we die, we will pass safely through the grave. That's what's happened to Norma. She's passed safely through the grave. See, when Jesus gives you eternal life today, that eternal life never stops. How do we know that? Because Jesus promises, doesn't he? John chapter 11. The person who believes in me, says Jesus will live even though they physically die. The person who lives and believes in me will never die. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? One of the Puritan writers puts it very well indeed when he says, when I die, I will change my place, but not my company. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? To realize that death for the believer is moving from one sphere, this world, to another and being in the company of Christ the whole time. Lastly, as you think this week about the significance of these words that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, can I encourage you not to confuse feelings with facts. You see, on the first Good Friday, um, the disciples watched everything that happened to Jesus. You know, the trial, the beating, the crucifixion, the burial. They felt God had abandoned them, that the plan was a failure, that Jesus had suffered for nothing. That's how they felt. The reality couldn't have been more different, could it? See, when Jesus was raised, they realized that actually his suffering and death were the means God used to save us. God hadn't abandoned them after all. No, he was all the time working behind the scenes to transform a situation of hopelessness and helplessness into a situation of joy and wonder. So my dear friend, when you go through times when you feel God is not there, we all go through them, you feel God has abandoned you. And you feel he's left you in some painful situation to make your own way through it. Look back to the first Good Friday 
Because on that day, when God seemed to be absent, the fact is he was working in a hidden and a mysterious way to transform our future in a totally unexpected and unbelievably wonderful way. And we're going to think about that more next Sunday morning. But for now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as Paul prayed that you would give us your gracious help to see more clearly, more joyfully, more wonderfully how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us in his death. Not just that we ourselves might be comforted, but that we might be your faithful ambassadors. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, after the sermon, we've been picking up